You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Dr. John Milbank is a well-known, well-respected British theologian and social theorist who exists in the same rank of scholars as does David Bentley Hart. Dr. Milbank's endorsement appears on the back cover of David Bentley Hart's That All Shall Be Saved, where he comments, If everything and everyone are not finally restored, then God is not God. This is the simple core of Hart's unanswerable argument masterfully developed. He calls us back to real orthodoxy, perhaps just in time. This recovery of a real orthodoxy is at the heart of a movement known as radical orthodoxy, a movement of which Dr. Milbank is a recognized founder. Dr. Milbank's 1990 book, Theology and Social Theory, Beyond Secular Reason, is considered a foundational text for the radical orthodoxy movement. Dr. John Milbank is a prophetic voice calling us back to a God-infused worldview, a worldview in which we encounter existence and creation as a gift from a purely good God, a good gift in which we may participate. Dr. Milbank is concerned with how the modern or perhaps postmodern world has lost an essential theological mooring which has set us drifting inexorably towards a secular nihilism. He is now an emeritus professor in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at the University of Nottingham, where he is president of the Center of Theology and Philosophy. Welcome, Dr. John Milbank, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Now, in your recommendation of David Bentley Hart's That All Shall Be Saved, you note that Dr. Hart is calling us back to a real orthodoxy, perhaps just in time, a sentiment with which you heartily concur. Could you describe for us your sense of that real orthodoxy which existed when Christianity was an early movement and not yet the religion of any empire? Well, <laughs> I, I'm not sure actually I go along with the association you're, you're making there. To be really honest with you, I, it suggests that uh, empire is somehow the problem, and I'm not sure that that's any part of my thesis. Um, empire is a complicated matter, um, I, and uh, I, I'm not claiming that orthodoxy only existed at a very early stage and then was suddenly lost. I think that orthodoxy developed over a long period of time and in a way it's never stopped developing and uh, you can identify a thread of the consistent development of, of orthodoxy um, with it perhaps first of all running into major problems um, conceptual problems sometime perhaps in the middle of the middle ages but that's not to say that there aren't antecedents for the problems that it, that it that it ran into, and if the problems it it run ran into eventually are something to do with a sense of God as an arbitrary tyrant, you know, mm-hmm. understanding divine omnipotence, an omnipotence on the model of a kind of worldly tyranny. Then the antecedents um, 
certainly would include um, the idea that that some people are eternally damned. So that I think I think what I would say is that eventually that doctrine, even though a lot of people see it as fully a part of orthodoxy, starts to eat away at the core of of, of Christian orthodoxy, precisely because it. it um, gives us this model of a tyrannical God. And once you've got that model front and center, it's rather hard to think of God as Trinitarian and and as incarnate and to see that as being at the at the core of, of, of theology. And I, I, I think probably it, it would be, you know, I don't think there's just one moment when things go wrong. I think you could mm-hmm. identify a period where they start to go rather drastically wrong. But as I say, there are things that happen earlier that later prove problematic. And I, I think one of those things would be the later theology of Augustine, the point where Augustine is rightly worried about Pelagianism and the idea that we can save ourselves through our own efforts. But then in overcompensating for that, he starts to lose the sense that the the divine action is synergic with our, our action. It's not over against our action in the way that a finite force might stand in contrast with another finite force because it's a transcendent force it's completely incommensurable and it doesn't interfere with or override our freedom but i think that in the later augustine there's a danger of him saying yes that 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 god takes a decision that completely overrides our our, our, our liberty and so um, you get the idea of the damnation of um, unbaptized babies, um, for example. And, mm-hmm. and God starts in that way to, to look like a tyrant and uh, uh, somebody who predestines us either, either to heaven or, or, or to hell. So the, there's a problem about an ex- the wrong sort of stress on on predestination and uh, and that i suppose goes hand in hand with the question of our our ultimate redemption or, or not you can you know one way around it is to say well god just you know decides us that we will all be saved without without our our having anything to do with it and that's one way eventually calvinism ca- can go but then if you're still concerned with human virtue and desert, you have much more likely to have the idea that somehow God um, mysteriously, graciously wills that some people are going to deserve salvation uh, and other people are not going to deserve salvation. Now, obviously, again, it's completely wrong to think that, you know, only Augustine is responsible for the doctrine of eternal hell, that, that... that that would be completely untrue, but I, I think that the way his later thought works perhaps tends to consolidate that that outlook. Um, shall we say? Well, there's a there's definitely 
a sense in Western theology that Augustine's Augustine's theology becomes determinative in the in the mm-hmm. Latin Western Church. I think sometimes I think I understand in your work you talk about the myth that Christian society is founded upon divinely ordained violence. I was wondering if you could speak to that a bit. Well, it, it, it's uh, it's it's a little bit more specific than that. Um, what what I'm trying to criticize is what I call an, an, an ontology of violence. In other words, any idea that somehow there's an anti- antagonism at the core of being in in some sense, which it seems to me is often true with with pagan um, outlook. The, there is something originally that resists the good or, or, or the unifying force. So it seems to me that the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of creation taken in tandem offer us, by contrast, an ontology of peace, that God is in himself peaceful communion and he brings the world into being out of nothing. He he doesn't chase away a monster of the deeps or 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 anything like that. There is no alternative principle to God. So so that evil and violence um, arises from resistance to God, from um, something that's in denial of of ultimate reality, rather than being co-original um with, with with that reality but but you would be right it, it, to the extent that um i would want to resist christian doctrines or versions of christian doctrine that seem to be incompatible with that idea that it, it's fundamentally an ontology of peace so i think a language of god punishing for example is problematic and that's what John Scotus Herugana says in commenting on Augustine. He questions whether or if for Augustine evil is privation. It's it's consistent to talk about God uh, as punishing because punishing involves you in some sense in, in negativity and evil, even if it's a kind of necessary um, evil. You, you know, it's... It's a kind of admission, if you like, that that's the best you can do. Uh, of course, the the question of of a redemptive punishment is is rather different. But if we're talking about a final and and an, an, an eternal punishment, how how is that compatible with a peaceful, omnipotent God who? who is not rivaled by any other principle. And significantly in in the city of God, Augustine at one point describes the state of hell as a state of permanent civil war, which in a way seems strange and inconsistent when part of his critique of the pagan city is that because of its worship of ambivalent demons, it is in a way committed to a kind of permanent stasis or civil war, as stasis means in Greek. So um, that, that again, you know, that seems to be a kind of metaphysical inconsistency in, in Augustine. And it's important to realize, you know, the doctrine of eternal punishment is not in the creeds. 
And I, I think David is convincing that it, it, it's... We're talking about David, David Bentley David Hart here. Hart, that, it, that it isn't in the Bible, that, that phrases that seem to suggest that are more plausibly interpreted as talking about a penultimate condition. And we don't quite know the distribution of who believed in hell and who didn't. I mean, but there are these reports from Basil suggesting perhaps universalism was at one point a more universal doctrine or a more majority-held doctrine than the other position. But it, it would be completely wrong to, you know, deny that, you know, belief in eternal hell was strong in the East as well. We we can't readily associate this belief, which I'm certainly questioning, with some tendency that we might be suspicious of in other ways, like, for example, imperialism. I mean, for example, although Oregon certainly has huge reserves about Christians fighting and so on. Oregon has a polemic. Uh, Oregon has an account of the providence, uh, the providential existence of Rome and the Roman the Roman Empire. Um, uh, indeed, you could make the counter argument that that empire tends to line up with the sense of a single truth uh, and of universalism uh, and so on. I think. It would be much truer to say that empire is in a very problematic relationship to notions of universal peace and universal truth. It's mm-hmm. on the one hand linked to 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 violence, if you like, but it's also linked to notions of pacification, unity and diversity, uh, and so on. And of course, it would be completely wrong to think of ancient empires as being like kind of modern modern overseas European empires. They're not exactly the same kind of animal, if, if, you, if you like. And while, yes, certainly, you know, the, the book of Revelation or, or Apocalypse, it looks as if that, that, that conveys a great deal of sort of Jewish anger about the, 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 the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that's only one testimony. There are there are other points, for example, in Maccabees, where the Jewish Empire seems the the Jews seem to praise the Roman Empire. The the attitude of the Old New Testament, you might say, is highly ambivalent. The attitude of Paul is highly ambivalent. I would even go so far as to say that Paul would have welcomed the conversion of Rome to Christianity and the unity of Rome with Christianity. So that runs very counter to a lot of readings. I, I realize that. But I see no no sign of that kind of automatic antagonism. And, and uh, you know, if, if I could put things inversely, if we're if we're blaming Augustine especially for making it very difficult to remove the doctrine of eternal punishment, then in fact it's Augustine who's really rather more critical of the Roman Empire than, than Oregon and some of the people who who are um, universalists and the you, the East in general is is probably rather more sanguine. Uh, about the Roman Empire, which survives and and is stronger um, in in the East, uh, and you know in the West, as you know, the empire is often much more of a fiction, although it eventually becomes something fairly real in the end. 
in the case of the the Holy Roman the Holy Roman Empire. But but I think that Christianity, broadly speaking, is sympathetic to Christ political internationalism. And realistically, that has tended to mean some form of empire or, or other. You know, I, I don't think Christianity is very obviously on the side of nationalism. You know, it, it's certainly on the side of what Catholics call subsidiarity and a plural distribution. But uh, you know, um, I think Augustine probably envisages a new kind of sort of Commonwealth, more decentralized empire. He goes on thinking that Roman citizenship is a good thing and that Christianity will improve the character of, of, of Roman citizenship. Well, as the uh, as the Roman Empire moves through time in Western civilization, it increasingly faces challenges or pressures for uniformity in both religion and law. And so the emperor Justinian puts himself to this. He eventually calls the Fifth Ecumenical Council in 553 to help further unify and purify the church. And how do you see this period influencing the trajectory of Christianity in the Western world? Well, again, I mean, I think... um, the, the fact that, you know, the enemies of Oregon or, or of a certain image of, of, of Oregon triumph, um, I don't think you can sort of necessarily see, ally that with something like a, a bad political control of the church. It could just, just as easily be linked to the exercise of um, clerical authority, if, if you like. Indeed, the, the, there's a sense in which sometimes um, the figure of the the empire or the sacral king is is linked to a rather more holistic sense uh, of, um, of of body and soul. Um, I I think uh, you know if you think of this, the case of Dante, a sort of a more complete eschatology almost, whereas. Uh, sometimes in the case of um you know clerical authority you know the clergy often want to sort of project an ultimately punitive um picture on, on the afterlife and you know maintaining control of your your congregations in in terms of terror and so on you can see um, how this has uh, a manifest appeal. You know, it it should be the case that we're attracted to God freely and attracted to God because He is attractive, because He is loved. <laughs> you know, but <laughs> but how often have clergy fully realised that? And you know, the temptations to be a kind of local tyrant. And I think this actually is very true in orthodox lands right to this day where you know the local priest has a great deal of autonomy and sometimes secular structures um are a little rough and ready you know the the temptation to be a sacral policeman is uh is is you know extremely strong Again, I would be very, very chary of of lining up the rejection of universalism with with something else that's supposed to be bad. I mean, I don't think we by any means have complete histories of, of all this as yet. 
I mean, it, it, it might be that sometimes secular rulers also like the, the notion of, of, of eternal punishment. It sounds better for, for keeping order. But I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that you, you, can, you can universalize that. Well, as I've looked into your scholarship, I've found that you want to make sure we appreciate an important change which occurred in Western civilization around the year 1300, a change which opened the door to a more secular way of understanding the world. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that. Um, yes. Well, I, I, I've already said, you know, in terms of narratives that, of things that go wrong, there's not necessarily just one point where they go wrong. And I think, you know, before you get to the year 1300, one can see problems um, with the the Gregorian reforms. Although they were admirable in many ways, they, they get rid of clerical um, corruption. They, they also establish strongly a kind of clerical authoritarianism and a stronger division between the clerical and the lay that perhaps prepares the way for too sharp a division between the world of nature on the one hand and the world of grace or, or, on, on the other hand. I think, though, that the, the, the encounter with, with Arabic thought, with, a, with um, Arabic philosophy, which is kind of a mixture of Aristotle and Neoplatonism, very, very enriching, um, but the West tended to debate precisely with Arabic philosophy. It didn't really at any stage debate with the more integrated uh, examples of Islamic thought, the mystical integrations of the Quranic legacy with, with philosophy. It did, tended to be, debate with those people whose... Um, position in relation to Islam was, was ambivalent, that, that uh, um, philosophy was seen as something definitely separate from the Quranic tradition. And I think that that rather disturbed the pattern of thinking about things it, it, within Christendom, that, that up to that point, there had been no sharp distinction made between philosophy and theology and the, mm -hmm. the kind of theology that comes from philosophy and the kind of theology that comes from the Bible. There was a huge fluidity. Um, uh, that fluidity, you know, continued to be the case in the East. But even in, in the case of Augustine and Boethius in the West, that fluidity is is there, or you can see it in Lombard's sentences. There's there's no real difficulty about introducing the Trinity very early on in your reflections, or or, or in reasoning back to a God who is already Trinitarian, even though you know he's only disclosed as Trinitarian through the Bible. So I I think already the beginning. Of a divorce between philosophy and and theology, and the emerging idea that there's a big difference between reason and revelation, and a big difference between reason and faith. I think all those things we now take for granted were not so readily apparent right up to roughly the year the year thirteen hundred. And I think in the case of Thomas Aquinas, you you can see 
the seeds of those kinds of divisions, although in, in the end, I think he retains a very integrated view. Uh, I think that in in other figures of scholasticism, particularly within the, the Franciscan tradition, there starts to be a danger of more of the duality emerging, uh, a duality between reason and faith. Um, and similarly, a kind of duality between reason and will. And I think one of the forms that a duality between philosophy and theology takes initially is the idea of the university of being that you get um, basically emerging through Avicenna, an Islamic thinker, but consolidated ultimately by the Franciscan thinker Duns Scotus. And then the danger becomes that you... Uh, you you think you can give a complete account of being before you've given an, an account of God. And then you situate God within the account you've given of, of being. And the danger is that if you've already decided that being always exists in the same way, in other words, a thing is either there or is not there, that you start however subtly and however much Duns Scotus thinks of God as an infinite being, you start to think of God idolatrously as a supreme being rather than being being itself. So mm-hmm. Aquinas following, still following Boethius, essentially, I think, it, 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 God, God is identified with, with to be, and, and God is the plenitude of being and the plenitude of being is identical with the plenitude of goodness and truth and and, and beauty um, and, and so forth. And everything else only exists by participating in, in, in that being. But once you've got this danger of seeing God as simply a supreme being, infinite, infinitely distanced from us, then on the one hand, the danger is is one of idolizing God, but but also the danger is that you lose that sense that everything speaks of God, that the the world is a vast repertoire of of symbols, so of sacraments, if you like, pointing um, towards God. That it's it's a mysterious book that always announces God to us, so that it's it's not so much a matter of inferring back from the world the existence to the existence of god in a very cold way it's much more as if the world speaks to us of god rather in the way that the bible speaks to us of god so uh, you you could say that for most of christian tradition the bible nature history all speak to us of god and speak to of god mysteriously, enigmatically, symbolically. Uh, and there's a fluidity between those three things. But I think after the 13th century, at least uh, in, in some very dominant currents, things start to get much more hard and fast. You can then only infer to a god as a first cause. Uh, that god might ne- necessarily be the object of your love, um, that God has just arbitrarily willed things to be in a certain way. Um, nature, the nature of the world 
starts to become more autonomous. It, as it were, runs itself uh, it, mm-hmm. because it no longer points towards God. And then in order for us to know about God, in order for us to be able to get to God and reach heaven, God has to reveal to us a whole bunch of information, if you like, that we have to believe in. And he sets down a series of things that we have to do, you know. And so, of course, it it, it becomes a matter of fulfilling the law and of um, obeying the church, maybe living an ascetic life. And you can see how eventually somebody like Luther finds all that intolerable. You can understand that. But you could argue that he's reacting against an already decadent vision, whereas people like Johannes Thaler, by whom he was influenced, much more hung on to an older mystical unity. But by that period in history, I think the problem was that it tended to be only the mystics who understood an older Christianity and the more um, learned Christianity has rather lost sight of that. There are are exceptions to that, people like Eckhart, Nicholas of Cusa, where mysticism and thought are very much still held together. But in general, that, that tends to be the danger. And that's one reason why with with Luther, you get a new beginning of something else altogether, a, a, a much more fideistic kind of approach to trust, dependence uh, uh, upon, upon a God. But but that God can often remain I- I- inscrutable and potentially terrifying so, so that the damage isn't necessarily undone. But mm-hmm. the, the perspective of radical orthodoxy in general is that we... We need to recover, albeit in a new way, that that kind of earlier vision, albeit with a, a rather more modern sense of subjectivity, time, history, change, even though those things are ultimately rooted back in Augustine and indeed right back in, in Plato and Socrates, if you like. So the, there's a sense in which the scholastic period um, which becomes rather non-effective, non-subjective, uninterested in time and and history. You, you know that though in the, in that sense, it's already a certain kind of modernity. It's a bit static. So that you know, mm-hmm. uh, th- this is this is one's problem, if you like, with with neo-scholasticism. You know, merely recovering the interest in subjectivity change, creativity, time, history, doesn't mean that you've somehow surrendered to modernity. And this is why, you know, even a figure like Descartes is is quite problematic, as somebody like Etienne Gerson already saw, in terms of um, how we're going to assess him. But I, uh, and, and I think exactly for that reason, radical orthodoxy isn't um, a matter of sort of recovering a golden age. You know, the, the Middle Ages was, was far too static, far too hierarchical. We, we, we have a much stronger sense now of the transformative power of nature, the way human beings um, can change things, and, and, and the need to sort of reconcile time with stability and, uh, and uh, the sense that the unfolding of time is still the unfolding of a, 
of a symbolic order, of a sacramental order. You know, that requires some attention, I think, to Renaissance figures and and not just to uh, the Middle Ages and later on to Romantic figures as well. And I think another way in which radical orthodoxy is is not just saying, you know, let's go back to the fathers or let's go back to uh, Aquinas or something like that, is that in some sense it believes in a radicalised orthodoxy. And this would be where the connection with David Bentley Hart um, comes in. And we were both together back in Virginia a, a while back. So um, before that, indeed, in Lancaster. So our, our connection goes deep back into the archaic past. Um, <laughs> but by, by radicalised orthodoxy, I think I mean that we have to look at those thinkers very aware of the the paradoxical dimension um, of God, you know, God, God is all in all. How is it then that there is something besides God, a creation besides God? You know, don't you have to say that creation both is God and is not God? And it, it seems to me very dangerous to think of the doctrines of creation or grace or, or of Christology or, as, or of the Trinity as in any way sort of diluting monotheism. And I think the implications of monotheism are monistic, you know, even in a way that can allow for a debate with Far Eastern thought. Because if God is one and everything comes from God, God creates everything, everything emanates from God. And I think creation simply is a radicalization of emanation. It's it's the purest emanation where there is absolutely no kind of contrasting material base. So in in that sense, monotheism is radical radical monism, if if you if you like. Whereas I think any kind of immanentism, any so-called pure pantheism, always lands up with a dualistic contrast between the perspective of the whole and the perspective of the individual parts. But if I have the idea that my existence as a creature is a return to God, there is no dualism, there is a more radical modism. And therefore, I think that specific Christian doctrines shouldn't be thought of as diluting either monotheism or monism, but as articulating it, you know. Mm -hmm. In other words, there is no unity of God um, outside divine expression the 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 expression of his plenitude and the unif and the dynamic unity of that uh, uh, of that ex- of that expression with with the mysterious origin in other words you can only think of unity in in a trend in a trend in a trinitarian way it, because this is a transcendent unity it's not the unity of one item it's a unity that includes plurality and is beyond the contrast uh, uh, only an absolute unity can identically repeat itself um if you like it it has to to do that in order to to be unity that would be um that would be one example and and similarly i i, I if god is incarnate then that's eternally true of him. It may, um, you know, it, it, we may say that God was incarnate 
at one point in in history. But that means by assuming a particular human man, he assumed human nature as such, because humans only exist unless we're nominalists, because they include human nature. So he, he made... He made a difference in in that way to to human nature as such, even if that that difference has to be communicated historically. And if we're saying that this is true, that that God assumed the manhood of of Jesus Christ, that then that has to be that has to be eternally true of of, of God. This. The, it's, we can't say of God that you know something happened to him that that hadn't hadn't always always happened, mm-hmm. if, if you like. And and you know even if we even if we want to say well, you, you know God became incarnate to redeem us from our sins. Again, you, you know Aquinas says, and yet the glory of the fact of the incarnation is in excess of its occasion. So, what's the implication of that? You know Aquinas says well. We can't know whether the incarnation would have happened or not if we hadn't sinned. But I think one has to go beyond that. I think one has to say, yes, it would have happened, not for Don Scotus's reasons, but I won't go into that. I think one has to say it, it, it would have happened because otherwise it could never have happened because this has to be something that is eternally true of God. Then therefore the incarnation, although it's an event, is is as much a disclosure of the Incarnation, and there is language in the New Testament um, that 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 very much um, suggests that. Uh, I I think, especially the passages that are probably picking up and referring to the Book of Enoch, which means, of course, that you know we have to go along with somebody like Bulgakov and, and talk about an eternal humanity as well as an eternal logos. But I I think there are passages in Paul that definitely imply that. So we have to say that that God is the God who is eternally in, in, incarnate. And I think it, that that then helps us to approach the paradox of how there is something in addition to God, how there is creation in, in, in addition to God. And, and in the end, through the incarnation, this is a complete manifestation of God, and and it's it, it's in no way in addition to 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 God to God's simplicity, not not even in the sense that the creation is sort of humble humble before Him. If if there is the creation is there to worship God, then th- this because nothing can be added to God. Th- this is also the divine worship of God, which is 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 there. Um, through Christ, so this, the point of creation then becomes the incarnation, and I think mm-hmm. you know all this has a bearing, ultimately, on, on universalism because I think that the logic also behind apocatastasis, the renewal of everything, is that it's intolerable that there can be anything um, literally outside God, you know, much less anything. Um, Eternally um, resisting God, so that the uh, somehow um, there is some glory in the finite. There is God has everything, if you like, except lack. 
and and somehow the the existence of things that are lacking is a glory in in themselves and yet at some point you see the paradoxical unity even of the finite in the inf- uh, with the infinite a coincidence of opposites between the infinite and the finite as well as the coincidence of opposites that is the infinite to put it uh, in the way that nicholas of cusa does so that he, he says that you know so beyond the gates of paradise there is this mystery that's in excess if you like even of the mystery of god and it's and it's christological um, mystery, but all the logic of, of, of Christology holds that there is an absolute and incommensurable difference between um, infinite and finite natures, and yet there is this unity, there is this personal unity, there is, if you like, this unity of character, unity of style, so that the radical thesis is that things ultimately hold together existentially uh, and and personally as if the whole of reality had a single flavor in in a very strange way and you know how else are we to understand the doctrine that the father expresses himself in the son that the father ha- has has an an image and yet, yet this is not static it's expressing always the inexhaustible origin of the Father, and it's endlessly interpreted by the Spirit who, in that way, is unified with the Father, so that it's, 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 it's in, entirely dynamic, such that um, the singular unity of personality is, is also a unity of, of something like a more fluid nature or, or kind, which as Bulgakov argues is not is not exactly impersonal. This is the whole point or part of the point of his thinking of the figure of Sophia. That that, that we, we can't say that the nature of God is is completely impersonal. And in that way also the although the divine and human natures are unified um personally that they are also unified sophianically uh you know that would be if you like the element of truth in the monophysite tradition that that it, you know in the far oriental churches are perhaps rather supported by the fact that they include more of this intertestamental stuff the book of enoch and so on in their in their bigger bigger bible so this sense of apocalyptic mystery that that you know the universe as apocalypse as as manifestation and somehow at the core of this is you know something like a mysterious um you know son of man figure epiphanic figure that that is that is holding it holding it all all all, all together and um so that um while, as I say, we have to have this absolute distinction of, of the natures, and they're 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 unified in in terms of 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 character. Nonetheless, we we require, in some sense, the paradoxical sense of an of an exchange of properties that you get in Cyril of Alexandria, but is 
rejected by John Calvin, who, to my mind, is clearly an historian. Um, and, you know, so that somehow the eternal Logos is born of Mary, the baby in the cradle creates the world. And indeed, we, we have to say that, you know, the birth of Jesus from Mary uh, and the and the birth of Jesus, the Logos from the Father, is, is exactly one and the same moment, you know. So unless Mary had said yes, there would be no reality. And I, th- I think if we don't see that, we haven't quite got what I would s- describe as the radical depth of, of Christianity, which in, w- in my way of thinking allows you at once to insist on the extreme particularity of Christianity and yet to enter into debate with other monotheisms and even with other monisms. <laughs> and, and I think that this becomes very uh, appropriate as we move into a century of the Eurasian, a century where the Eurasian so far figures as appalling tragedy. And, uh, and I think that the question of the reunification of Christendom and the question of the reconciliation of the West with the East metaphysically is not irrelevant to that tragedy. And I think also it means a taking account of black theology in the sense of Ethiopian theology, the Ethiopian legacy. And I was just in Rome where they're talking about increasing evidence that that Christianity spread in other parts of Africa uh, very early on. Uh, you know, beyond what we have so far imagined. And and so this means a, a kind of, if you like, an expanded West, not an anti-West, you know, I'm not a kind of post-colonial type, not at all, but a, a, a definitely an expanded sense of our, of our Western identity and linkages, an expanded sense of, of, of Christianity in relation to the globe. I think when you're one of the things that stood out to me that you just said was something about if Mary had not said yes, you know, something about then creation somehow hanging in the balance. Oh, on the or, one or, hand, or more metaphysically, there just wouldn't have been anything. That this is this is an abs. She because she is saying yes to she is bringing about God. <laughs> You know, uh, she is herself a Sophianic figure, a figure of of linkage between God, between God and creation at that moment, and and in a really unfathomable way, everything depends upon this ordinary girl sitting by the well in the in a village in in the middle of the world. I guess I've liked that uh, passage from Isaiah, Isaiah forty six ten, where God is the one that knows the end from the beginning. And so while our participation is real, God is not a parent depending on the children for the success of God's mission and creation. And so that, that this monistic idea is that we are really are God's children. We really do participate in God's good world, but that God is not dependent upon us in a sense to validate God's own creation from the beginning. Yes, but we, we, you know, we probably have to to go further and think more paradoxically. Um, you, you know, if, if everything emanates from God, and if in some impossible way, things have denied God, 
things have rebelled against God because they they're finite. But we too easily imagine that that is a possibility. I mean, it, it it's it's baffling, if you like. It it it's a mystery. But it, it's impossible that something could be removed from God that was of God without without that damaging um, God's self. And I don't I don't think that takes you into any kind of Hegelianism, actually, but it, but it is it is simply unthinkable. So that you, you know, immediately without a pause, as it were, God has to take create corrective action. The divine grace has to prevail. I mean, that that it can prevail once over evil suggests already that it entirely prevails. It always prevails. It will universally prevail that there's no greater mystery if you like about thinking thinking that one so that in a sense no god absolutely doesn't require us uh, but in in another sense he cannot do without us and you know this is why jesus has these parables of searching for lost sheep searching for for lost coins the the implication which is sometimes brought out in more Gnostic reasons, readings, but I don't see why it shouldn't be perfectly orthodox, is, is the sense not just that he wants to gather in as many coins, as many sheep as possible, but he needs to gather in every sheep, every coin, because they these are aspects of, of his glory, you know? He, he cannot do without. There is some sense in which it's, God who has to be redeemed. In in this sense, the Kabbalists are right. Um, not that he's ever not redeemed, um, but that the you know the really shocking thing about evil is the apparent damaging of the good, not just the the damaging of individuals. Otherwise, Christianity, it seems to me, is reduced to something, you know. From a from a general point of view, it almost becomes trivial. It it it's like, well, who's going to be included in this story of divine triumph or not? It it becomes reduced to a courtroom drama, uh, and I, I I'm sure that the courtroom drama is somehow less important eschatologically than images of battle and rescue. If, if you like, I'm I'm not ex- exactly sure how I would argue this exegetically, but I nonetheless think it to be the case. In the end, it, it it's not as if God is is playing a kind of game for for his own amusement in any sense, what whatsoever. And even to say, well, God didn't need to create; it's his it's his sort of absolute generosity isn't enough how 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 would it be possible to imagine that god in himself lacked generosity that there, there, there can't be anything that god does that he doesn't have to do even though that is only what he freely does because in god there there is no contrast between necessity necessity and freedom it mu- the creation must we can only take it as an expression of how god is it's an impious decadent sort of fantasy to say, well, God might not have created, you know? Uh, not only should we 
be be playing those abstract games of presupposition, but it, it, it's it's not compatible. Again, it's not compatible with the divine simplicity that there would be any contrast between what he does and what he reserves. You know, what he does is also what he reserves. Um, well, there, it seems it, to me that there, it's a gift, you know, there you know, wouldn't, yeah, there would not be any lack then of understanding when God enters into creation of of what God is intending and and what God is doing. And, and in 2018, you posted on social media a couple of things that I think go along with this. You 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 remarked uh, Christianity has to now embrace apocatastasis as the orthodoxy it has always been. Any lost child is a lost coin that has to be found for the kingdom to be complete, as Christ so clearly teaches. And in another post you commented, as God is good, he is necessarily victory and cosmic redemption of all things, apocatastasis. It is there, clear for all to read in the New Testament. The goodness of the divine simplicity is entirely free, yet entirely inevitable, given his nature. We are here beyond ontic contrasts. I was wondering yeah. if you could say some more about those I quotes. Think, you know, it's getting back to what I'm saying at Christology. If it seems to me that, you know, the point of creation is is at the end that it it's uh, somehow at its core there is an identity with god but it it's it's quite clear from the doctrine of the body of christ in paul and from the doctrine of the totus christus in in in, in augustine that the, you know the the body you can't separate Christ from Mary, you can't separate Christ from his disciples, from his bride, the church, that, that his complete body um, in, in, includes all of us, you, you know, so that there, there is no acme of this point of absolute identity between God and creation without an inclusion of all of us. You know, there can't be some antagonism between Christ and something else within his creation. That's why St. Paul says that in the end, Christ will be all in all. If Christ wasn't all in all, he wouldn't be Christ. And if there wasn't Christ, there wouldn't wouldn't be God, given that we know that God is, is the creator. And we can't possibly see this as accidental to God without some kind of totally ungrounded presumption and you know that's one reason why we need to get back to Oregon's perspective on that. And even if you read Augustine in detail in in the Confessions, to be consistent with himself, he he really is saying uh, that that creation is something co-eternal with God. I think. I mean, it, hmm. formally, it doesn't quite look like that. But I I I think that if you if you read him rigorously, that ought to be implied. You know, this is certainly the way he, he's read by Arugana. Well, it seems to me also that there's a certain category of beauty as a way of knowing that's a part of your thinking. And I was wondering if you could comment about that. Yes, I think I think beauty is essential. I think for a lot of medieval thinkers, including Aquinas, it, it's in a way what holds all the all the other transcendentals together being manifests itself as truth and it manifests itself as truth to an observer 
Um, and in that way, you get a linkage between being truth, goodness, you know, the, as a, goodness as a response to the truth. And I think for that reason as well, it tends to to link the objective with the subjective, that, that disclosure is disclosure to someone. Otherwise, how would we be talking about disclosure uh, at all? So you've got this kind of tri- triadic structure that, that something is manifest but not fully manifest, manifest to someone. Someone infers from the manifest what lurks behind the manifest. And, and all that um, is very much an a- a- aesthetic process, I think, in which the moment of beauty remains completely irreducible. And, you know, that's why... The finality is a vision, is 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 a vision of God, is a vision of overwhelming beauty that inspires overwhelming joy. But uh, I I think he, he, even that, as you know, Jean Yves Lacoste implies that even that can't be taken as static or finished in any of our senses of finished. It's much more something like epictasis, as Gregory of Nyssa says, or we're or we're totally beyond any contrast between between finished and 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 un, unfinished. So, the beautiful keeps on dis, disclosing to us um, being uh, and 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 truth as somehow the disclosive relationship between between being and and, and the beautiful and. And, and good as our compulsion, the, the compulsion of our love drawn, drawn towards that. Well, what, what you're describing, I think, is a, is a very beautiful vision of God that fits in with the uh, early centuries of the church that you can see throughout the history of the church if you sort of know where to, to look for it. Un- unfortunately, when I was uh, growing up in the American South in the Bible Belt, that the early picture of God that I got was somehow distilled through American evangelicalism, and it was a, a remote and distant God who who really was going to have to torture us all forever, unless we, you know, yeah. and 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 it it wasn't a beautiful, it wasn't it was a deeply disturbing, a deeply yeah. disturbing vision of God. And yeah. if I hadn't been able to discover a beautiful vision of God that legitimately sits within mm-hmm. the history of the Christian tradition, I could have never uh, connected mm-hmm. myself with with the tradition. So I appreciate the work that uh, radical orthodoxy is doing in helping us to to recover, not in a static way, not just to go back, mm-hmm. but to be recovering and to also sort of continuing to be moving forward in a very intelligent way into the future. So I, I commend your, I commend your work on that. Thank you very much. And I, I think that, that, that sort of rather, you know, grim Christianity tends to reinforce a very disciplinary society. It tends to not understand um, the role of the convivial and the festive in informing society you know, it overstresses an ethical discipline or it has a foreshortened understanding of what the ethical is. It fails to see that the ethical is itself um, communion and, and, and love. So that an obsession with hell, um, eternal punishment, very sort of 
much under rights, a kind of punitive um, society on earth. And I think the trouble is that the more you have that kind of perspective, then the, the the intimacy of Christianity, the way it's to do with our whole lives, all our personal relationships, the way it gets right down into the family level, and you know that tends to be to get perverted. You know, in the way people like Michel Foucault and Ivan Illich have described, you know, that the 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 personal and the intimate itself gets institutionalized and maybe the world we now live in where our whole lives are digitalized and everybody's looking at us all the time and our our intimate choices are secretly routinized you know maybe that is somehow the outcome of, of a very perverse kind of of christianity and and what we need to very much recover now is 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 that sense of the the convivial, and I, you know I think that Charles Taylor is right that one of the one of the reasons why you know people started to find Christianity unacceptable you know was this vision of eternal hell, and yet uh, to some degree haven't they then all the more produced hell on earth by pretending to be God and being our ultimate masters. And it seems to me that, you know, all the way from Napoleon to Putin, if you like, we've had these people who think they are, you know, exercising the last judgment. And, you know, Putin the other day almost warned us that he was going to um, deliver the last judgment. But, you know, there's a, there's any sort of one qualification that I would want to put on all this and is that I'm not, while I think we need to recover more a sense of mystical unity, if you like, we in Christianity, to put it very simply, that doesn't mean I think we should simply dump the powerful sense of the personal, the ethical, the political, human dignity that does come more through Augustine and Aquinas in particular. In other words, more through the Western tradition, if you like. So that the concern with how we are to live our lives, um, the concern with politics, the good order of, of a society, which is perhaps more developed in, in the West, and yes, it gets over-institutionalized. Yes, it's connected perhaps with this ultimate final courtroom overstressed image of reality. But all the same, I don't want us to lose that sense of the practical, if you like, in, in favor of an over kind of oriental sense of, well, it doesn't matter. It's all a dream anyway. You know, it, it. If you like, what I'm saying is that we need to bring together the monistic with a sense of the individual, the personal, the unique difference of each people, the responsibility that people have to each other. And to put this really, really simply, it seems to me that that's exactly what the doctrines of the Trinity and and, uh, and of the Incarnation do. That they link absolute unity of nature um, with person and personality. They do it in different ways. Uh, we have three persons in one nature. We have two natures in one person. Um, and and uh, that's a huge complicated mystery. But in both cases, 
I think the 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 linkage of unified nature with personhood uh, and the need to mediate those two in the way that sociology tried to do. I think that now becomes of enormous importance towards articulating something like a, a global vision. So I'm being very, very ecumenical. I'm Yes, I'm suggesting something's gone wrong, something's lost, um, but that, that doesn't mean there are sort of somehow simplistic bad guys, you know, or that Aquinas and Augustine are suddenly bad guys, or even that the Byzantine emperors were bad guys, or or and even Don Scotus did a very important task. He 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 made people think analogy through in a much more rigorous and 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 paradoxical way. Everything I'm saying, if you like, is uh about insisting on Christian particularity, orthodoxy, and yet being generously universal, radical, radical orthodoxy. Well, I, I appreciate the time that you have uh, spent with us on this interview, Dr. Melbank. Your your work is certainly uh, penetrating, and the radical uh, orthodoxy movement has a lot to say about social theory and the good of the world. And sort of yeah, how to we, retain. Yes, yeah. We 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 sort of tried to develop on all fronts, not not because we really think we could do that, but because we think it needs to be done, and that it's important to try to sustain the unity of knowledge and practice, which our whole modern world tries to fragment, and that and then by not seeing the connections, we perhaps miss what is deeply going on. So we've tried to think about philosophy. We've tried to think about natural science. We've tried to think about um, politics, even trying to think about psychology. But different people have been carrying forward those tasks. And of course, they don't all agree about everything, but there's some kind of shared family resemblance. And at that extent, it's a very, very fluid movement. There are, It's not a question of being inside it or outside it, not even in the slightest. You know, There are lots of kindred spirits and, and kindred movements, I, I, mm-hmm. I, I think. Well, what I appreciate about your scholarship is mm-hmm. the effort that it goes to to help us regain a sense that we really do live in a God-infused creation. Yes. And that as, and as Christians, we can live in the faith that ulti- ultimately God will restore our good creation, which includes all of us. But along the way, there's a sense of real, and I think as you're saying it, necessary kind of participation that, yes. that we make. And so this is not yeah. just a dream. It's it's really happening, and our participation yes, really is the, important. The, the most it, extreme mysteries, you know, we're 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 hoping for something that we can't deliver, you know, or our desire d- exceeds what we deliver, and yet the further mystery is that somehow what we're doing is relevant to the final. <laughs> final outcome that we are yeah. in some way building the kingdom even though the kingdom is something that we ultimately have to receive uh, and that's a total mystery but but we have to live it 
Well, that yeah, when I when I studied the kingdom mm-hmm. of God and un- began to understand that the kingdom is God's kingdom, it's God's ruling, reigning, and power and authority. It's mm-hmm. in my position to receive it, to accept it, to submit myself to it, but I can't really subtract from it or add to it. Uh, but That's I can, exactly per- right. sure but I can, per- mm-hmm. yes, but I can, I can participate it in it and receive it in 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 so doing. Uh, do my little part that the kingdom yes. of God yes. may be on earth as it is in heaven. Yes. 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 There's a sense in which we can do nothing and a sense in which every action is is of ultimate importance, somehow joined to Mary's ascent in in some mysterious way. Well that's so, a that's a humbling that's a humbling thought for us to conclude mm-hmm. on and I want to mm-hmm. thank you for your time and for your scholarship. Well, not at all. Thanks you. Thank you very much for doing the honor of interviewing me and uh, and I've enjoyed our chat. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.